0: Aidan Thompson here, and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now, this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market, featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the pack-heavy mentality, and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organisation. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organise the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. G'day, and welcome to episode 78, where today I have guest Karen McCarthy, who is the CEO and co-founder of Lumi Foods. Now, let me just start off by saying that it was an absolute pleasure and an honor to have had the opportunity to chat with Karen on this show. Uh, Now, I was fortunate enough to have previously interviewed both Margaret Coons from Nuts for Cheese and Melissa Mills from Spreadham Kitchen here on the podcast and both of them spoke just so highly of Karen and suggested that she was instrumental in um, their business journeys. So I've actually had Karen on my radar for a while now to interview and here we are today with the show. So Karen is a globally recognized leader in the field of plant-based cheesemaking, with an extensive experience as a chef in addition to an academic background in political science and biology. Her level of knowledge, real world experience and willingness to share on this episode puts it right up there as one of my best conversations to date for you all to learn from. As well as covering the Blue Heron and food set up stories, we cover Karen's immensely intimate knowledge of plant-based cheese making, where it fits into the history books, the balance of art and science, old traditions and new technologies and what the future looks like in this space. So, Before we strap in and get stuck into the episode, if any of you have any feedback or questions from today's conversation, I would love to hear from you. For everyone else out there, if this is your first episode of the podcast, welcome to the show. And thanks for joining me here. And please also feel free to chime into the conversation on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. So that's enough from me for now. Let's get on with the show. Enjoy. Karen, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me, Hayden. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to have you here as well. It's been a long time coming. I've wanted to sit down and have a chat with you because, um, you know, doing my research on you, uh, you've got such a, a great history of um, being involved in the uh, vegan cheese making community. And there are some people out there that I've already spoken to that speak so highly of you. So, yeah, welcome.
1: Well, this is fun. I know. You, I, I believe you. I, well, I've listened to the podcast, so I know that you've af- absolutely had a chance to talk to some really great uh, people in the sector, like Margaret at Nuts yep. for Cheese and Melissa, uh, a lovely friend of mine at uh, Spreadham Kitchen. Yep. Both who make who are doing such amazing things.
0: Yeah, aren't they? And I mean, both great products out there. I've sampled Margaret's um, product at trade shows only, but where a uh, the uh, Melissa's product at Spreadham Kitchen is a staple in our household, so we love it too
1: yeah yeah she's a boss (laughs) she's a boss for sure isn't she (laughs) yeah yeah
0: (laughs) yeah I really enjoyed my conversation with her we um we kicked it off pretty well and um yeah I mean she is such a hands-on person and yeah definitely somebody that you know has been there and done that and is still grinding away so hard so yeah it was really cool to hear
1: yeah, no, I really admire Melissa. We actually um we actually sort of started in the same when 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 we opened uh blue hair and creamery um with my original business partner, Colin yep. Methurst, um we actually were in the same commissary as Spreadham Kitchen. Oh right.
0: Okay.
1: Um so just as she was commercializing as well. Uh, so I still remember the day she sent out her first palette uh from the commissary to her eyes and distributors.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and So she's so far since as, then. Yeah.
1: yeah, she's certainly served as someone I'm inspired by cool. and her drive and her, her wit and her just sheer enjoyment of what she does is very infectious.
0: That's awesome. Um, it's nice to hear that it's a, a tight little community. And I did sort of pick up on that when I was talking to Margaret as well, mm-hmm. um, even though she's on the other side of the country. I, I know that, you know, from what she told me that she definitely feels as if, you know, she's a part of a community um, and that's probably largely yeah. driven by LinkedIn, I'd imagine as well.
1: No, I actually don't think, no? I mean, maybe contemporarily, I think LinkedIn is now part of that, yep. but I think the vegan cheese sector really started developing that sense of community in Instagram. Oh, like right. that's okay. how I met Margaret uh, was via Instagram. Really? Um, It's how I developed relationships with like uh really world-class vegan cheese makers, like at new roots in Switzerland. And yep. they're one of their co-founders, Freddie Hunziker um, and, and, vegan cheesemakers like Julie at Artisa Tasmania in in Australia. Um, And that was all via Instagram. LinkedIn, I think, has, we all use now, but by far, most of the conversations I have with vegan cheesemakers, the more one-on-one, the more in-depth ones has absolutely been through Instagram.
0: Yeah, that's cool. It's great to know. I mean, when before have we ever had such easy access to people? It's pretty amazing, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, when a novel sector is evolving, and it's been such an an interesting trajectory for the sector right now. um, Yet you've got to finding ways to communicate uh, around any kind of shared knowledge or learning. um, At least social media has allowed those opportunities to happen.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I'm sure we'll dig on into um, this further during the conversation, because I do have a note to sort of, yeah, crack into um, the networking piece a little bit. But before we get started with all of that, where are you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: Um, I'm from Alert Bay, which is a small community um, up on the coast of BC. Right. Um, it's on an island uh, called Cormorant Island. Um, it's part of the Namgus Nation. Um uh and so yeah it's got the island itself has a storied history um but yeah i come from a very small community
0: <laughs> i've never heard of it um,
1: yeah if um if you ever are on vancouver island and you're heading to the north of vancouver island to yeah. say something like port hardy yeah um there's a turn off to a community called port mcneil and then you take a ferry from port mcneil to alert bay
0: okay what is it like a 45 minute ferry or
1: yeah, it's about forty-five minutes. That yeah. the, there's a Tri-Island ferry that runs between uh, Cormorant Island, uh, the community of Alert Bay on Cormorant Island, yeah. and to uh, the community of Sointula on Malcolm Island, mm-hmm. and then between Port McNeil, which is on Vancouver Island.
0: So this is on the east coast of Vancouver Island, or is it on the Pacific? Yeah, yeah, it's,
1: yeah, it's just off the. It's just off the east yeah the east coast of vancouver island
0: not the west coast yeah oh cool i'll have to uh yeah look it up on a map we um we love to well actually we haven't been across to the island for a while since the pandemic to be honest but um we would love to get an airbnb at some stage and yeah we were thinking we would check out a, another island but we we're thinking more like a galliano or a pender or something like that something a little bit yeah closer to everybody
1: home. does the southern gulf Islands, yeah. and justifiably they're gorgeous but yeah. north vancouver island has some real gems up there um and where i grew up in alert bay notably um in in jo- johnson street and around Turner Island up there. Um it's renowned for the red uh, the, the orca pods that mm. um occupy the area. Beautiful. Um and if you're if the hiking up around the North Coast Trail, I don't know. If the North Vancouver Islands and the the off islands are actually yep. really worth a visit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely take the time to look it up. Awesome. So growing up in a community like that, it would have been very small. And I can imagine, you know, the opportunity to get over onto the mainland or to move across into a large city would have seemed really appealing. At what time or what stage did you manage to get across?
1: Um, well, I'd always wanted to leave the island. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm always grateful I grew up there and for the experiences I had there. But from a really early age, I was I was eager to leave. Yep. Um, I didn't finally leave Leave Alert Bay, though, until I was about 23. Um, I was a deckhand uh, and with the FBC Ferries at the time really? and a paramedic. And so I transferred, I applied for a transfer out of Alert Bay uh, to down to the lower mainland at the time and began a different trajectory in my life.
0: <laughs> so you're a paramedic, so you did all of your training... I-
1: yeah, I was. I was. Wow. I am not now.
0: No, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that is a totally different um, path in life. So sort of talk to me about how you found, you know, food and sort of how that sort of trajectory took off.
1: Well, I actually think food was always there. I um, I. Like I, we, we learned how to garden by parents, both had uh, influence on that. Mm -hmm. The school I went to, we were all taught how to garden and grow food. Um, I still remember the very first things I learned how to cook. Um, and around the age of 12 is actually, well, around starting around age nine, but really solidifying at age 12 um, is really where I declared myself vegetarian slash vegan. Yeah. And my mom had very clearly stated that she was not going to cook multiple different meals. So I would have to learn to cook for myself. And so I've been cooking and learning how to do things from fairly early on. I taught myself how to make jam, mm-hmm. taught myself how to make bread. Um, and so it's, it was food was always just part of things Um, but there had been a period of time where I I really did think for a long time that I was going to pursue a career on the water Mm. Um, and then when I started to work for the ambulance service the BC ambulance service in Alert Bay is because there was a community need Mm. and I found out I really enjoyed the work Mm. and so then I thought well I would really enjoy a career in the in the paramedical realm um, and then when I moved to Vancouver, I, I, <laughs> none of my trajectory is straightforward. <laughs> none of it. None of it is. <laughs> it just, I pursued different paths. I was always planning to attend post-secondary and none of that really sort of crystallized until, you know, sort of my mid-20s for yeah. me. Yeah. Um. And yet none of it was really solidified around food yet. I really did think for quite a long time that I was going to stay in a career path that would somehow involve me staying in the paramedical realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I end up in university and, and a lot of things changed there just in terms of all the things I was becoming involved in mm-hmm. and the things I was caring about and doing. And I started to work in food, uh, you know, as students do to have other jobs. Yeah. Um, but it became pretty clear that, that I wanted to do more in it. Mm -hmm. And then there was just sort of a weird, I was pursuing advanced post-secondary. Like I I was heading down an academic track, uh, let's say towards masters or PhD. Yep. Yep. And I just had a moment where I thought I didn't want to write any more essays or write anything big or to, I just had a moment. I just had a moment and I was in the UK and I was off to visit a prospective supervisor and just had a moment where I was like, this isn't what I'm going to do right now. And I was already working in kitchens and in food. And I was like, I'm just going to cook. I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay in food right now.
0: You're just ready to sink your teeth into something rather than feel as if you are still sort of in the educational system.
1: It's not that the education, it wasn't I didn't it wasn't that I didn't see value in that. I absolutely did and do. And wow, it's it's actually been such an important part of everything else I've done since. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was just I had a moment where I just couldn't see what value I could contribute. I didn't see mm. the value of my contribution. Like yeah. I stood in this massive, massive library and had a moment thinking about how many people are writing things, how many dissertations, how many this, and mm-hmm. all And this just sheer weight of it all. And I just thought, I don't have any words that can add anything interesting or new. Mm -hmm. So what is the point of pursuing this thing in my head? (laughs) So I just thought, I guess I'm not going to do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, working in a kitchen, uh, working with your hands, I can imagine like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's rewarding for so many different reasons. But there's something that I find extremely rewarding around working with food and serving food. And, uh, you know, with you being a paramedic and obviously being in the, um, you know, the field of medicine, that's, you know, a service you're giving and you're providing. And here you are in the food industry doing exactly the same thing. So it sounds like it's something that's inherent in your nature.
1: Yeah. I think it's that opportunity to unite the 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 cerebral with the physical and practical and so I think that was certainly something I found was met very much in working in food Mm. Um, and then really like cooking is very much science like it is Mm. art but in order to make art you have to really understand materials and how things work together and chemical transformations and Mm -hmm. uh, all of that so it was it was so very grounding it was so very like it's embedded work and it just i don't know it just fulfilled something i i mean i can't say that being a chef is a great career choice mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to you have to really be i mean the degree the degree of commitment and the toll it takes oh, yeah. and you know that for the most part it is not great paying
0: yeah Yeah. Yeah. It's physically and emotionally demanding on a level that not many people understand. And I've witnessed it myself. Like I've worked in plenty of restaurants and plenty of cafes and I've, I've witnessed the, uh, the turmoil and you know, the pain that a chef can carry daily.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that comes with its own set of very hard learnings. Right. So, um, but it is how I ended up in food. Like that—that yep. is really how I ended up in food. <laughs> and,
0: awesome. Yeah. So I did say obviously we um, chatted briefly about Grays earlier on and Zen Conscious Lounge, which were both vegan restaurants or um, plant-based restaurants. And it was at that stage, you know, um, you know, at what point did you decide that Blue Heron Creamy was Creamery was something that was potentially on the agenda for you? And where did the idea come from?
1: Oh yeah, that's a great question. So I was the executive chef of a vegan restaurant called Grays. Um, And I had begun my foray into vegan cheese making during that period, I wanted to offer something to my guests that wasn't available on the market Mm -hmm. at the time in 2013. um, That the type of products available, I didn't think met the kind of work that we were doing. We had a kitchen garden, we grew a lot of our own ingredients, we were doing a lot of in house fermentation, making our own kombucha, making a lot of different things. And so I started looking to produce something for our boards. I didn't love what I was confronting on the internet in terms of recipes from the vegan side of things like nutritional yeast and cashews and coconut oil. Um, I also didn't really like that a lot of those recipes didn't explain why those ingredients were being chosen on and really how they work. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at how dairy cheeses were made, um, And really, that's for me was the moment where I was like, oh, this is about bacterial cultures. This is about microbes. This is about transforming material from one thing to another thing and how how all the steps that are involved to make something. So in dairy cheese making, how you make a blue cheese is not remotely the same way as how you make a chef style cheese, or a cheddar cheese. Um, And, and for me, that was the moment, like, oh, man, like, there's so much opportunity to do these things here. And getting to understand that, that some things are, you know, going to behave quite differently, simply because the the, the structures of plant materials are not the same, like the mm-hmm. proteins in plants are not the same as the casein proteins in, in animal dairy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like they're not even exactly the same in between sheep's, goats or, or cow's milk, for instance. Yep. Yep. So it began at Graze. Um, we produced our own cheeses. Uh, we were featured in the Globe and Mail, even at that time. Um, we did a season with vegan cheeses at the farmers market under the Graze banner, but during that time, I was also approached uh, by someone from New Society Publishers and asked if I wanted to write a book about uh, cultured plant-based cheesemaking. Mm. At <laughs> that that step off there, to have an opportunity to explore more in depth uh, an approach a, spe- a specific type of approach to cultured plant-based mm-hmm. cheesemaking and and that relationship between microbes and transformation um, that really served as the beginning of the step off that would eventually lead me to think about um, do I stay a chef or do I pursue a thing Mm. and uh, there was a lot of things that led to that Um, increasing demand for vegan cheeses that we had been producing at Graze um demand that people kept sending me emails and asking and in the research for the book I kept developing things but I couldn't I wasn't eating them all so Mm -hmm. so they had to go somewhere and so there was a period of time where you know that was sort of happening in a quasi-covert way um but in that moment I had I had to really commit I had to decide do I pursue this or do I stay on the chef career track and so I chose to pursue it and I had reconnected with a former uh, guest at Gray's, Colin Methurst. And, um, and together we launched uh, the initial version of Blue Heron Creamery in 2017.
0: Yeah, I did say that. And it was a subscription model from what I understand.
1: Yeah, the initial approach... Um, while we were trying to find ways to, to, you know, deal with production was to do a monthly subscription mm-hmm. and then it became bi-monthly. And then we would, people would sign up for a list and we would have whatever type of cheese that we were been working on um, would be what was a sampling of that would be what was available. And mm-hmm. then people would come and pick them up. And the guys, Zach and Ryan, and the guys of the cheese truck were so yeah. gracious because we often used their site as a pickup location for the subscription.
0: Um,
1: and then a lovely little cafe in deep cove that's changed hands and names Um, but we would sort of stage different pickup areas
0: (laughs) yeah oh fantastic and to have such demand from such an early stage would have been so validating for you to you know um, confidently pursue and spend more time and energy on it you know as well
1: yeah yeah, it was definitely a way to test the waters and see what people would be interested in and, you know, get all the kinds of feedback, good, bad, and otherwise. Yep. Um, and so that, it, that I thought it was really valuable. Mm. Um, it, it's still some, some somewhere in the back of my head, I'd still love to be able to do a subscription model.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, you know, currently shipping costs can challenge some of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's very expensive here in North yeah, America. Yeah, it is yep. right
1: now. Yeah. Um, but it absolutely allowed it allowed me to really start laying the framework for what has become sort of the bedrock foundation for Lumi's approach. Mm. Um, but it allowed us to really pursue different styles of cheese. Uh, um, I didn't want to do a common base that's just flavored differently. I mm-hmm. really wanted to pursue different styles of mm-hmm. cheese, which means this process may, to make this thing is may not be, it will be a different process than it takes to make, you know, item X, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause a lot of what happens in vegan cheese making right now is either taking a common base that's fermented the same way and then adding different flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas we take a different approach, we may not all of our cheeses have the same base. For instance, right. so we have some that are cashew based, we have some that are coconut cream based, we have some that are lupini based. Um, we're currently in the middle of a very big um, R and D project through Protein Industries Canada, where we're really doing deep investigation um, on different materials, and buckwheat's becoming an incredibly right. important ingredient for us. Yep. Um, and so. Uh, our approach is just different in that way um than some of the others take right now
0: that's awesome where did the name blue heron come from blue heron creamery
1: uh blue heron came from the fact that i like blue herons (laughs) (laughs) i love how simple that is (laughs) it really wasn't it it it, it was
0: yeah (laughs)
1: It was, it's a there's a little bit of depth there. Like I have a tattoo on my ankle, a blue heron tattoo okay. and the date, the date is actually in my Instagram when it all sort of came down for me. It was like, I believe it was like December of 2015. Okay. I posted it and I'd been drawing a blue heron and I'd been trying to think of the name for what this project would be. <clears throat> and for me, I've always found, um, when I go, when I, my head is messy and I go to the shore and I, I find myself very much gravitating to watching the herons mm-hmm. Um, And they always act with purpose, not just like flitting about, like whatever action they take, it's with a purpose. And they're very calm and steady. And I just, I don't know, I always just had found myself gravitating them and they're pretty.
0: Yeah, they are. We um, living here in Richmond, where I live, um, you know, down on the dike, there are blue herons everywhere. And my wife and kids yeah. love watching them. So, they are majestic birds. They seem wise. Like if you just look at their demeanor, they feel really wise and they've got amazing balance. And yeah, they are beautiful creatures.
1: Yeah. So that that was basically the, the inspiration for the initial name. Yeah. there you
0: go. Oh, good. I wanted to know. <laughs> awesome. And you know, one thing that I would like to touch on um, early in the conversation as well is the brand that you've built around it, like the aesthetic and the feel. Like you did mention the importance of, you know, the scientific method of cheese making mm-hmm. that you've incorporated into Blue Heron. And, you know, that has followed through in the branding, but it's also got, and as well as Lumi, you've just really created this beautiful artistic sort of uh, feel that's really out there in a lot of the photography that's sort of um, that's out there. How did you sort of land in that space? Like, was that something a part of the vision that you had for the brand and uh, what you were developing as well?
1: Well, we went through a went so in 2019 when we connected with a fellow named Lawrence Ede, who's our board chair and, and a, now a co-founder of the this latest iteration, which is Lumi. Um, and Blue Heron is now our legacy uh CPG brand. Um, we went through a pretty arduous um brand redevelopment process with Arithmetic Studio here in Vancouver. Right. Um, they're an award-winning design studio. And uh, Margarita Pora and her team, they're so thoughtful and so intent-driven with how they approach a brand project. So they really led us through a pretty in-depth process uh, to tease out all the things. Yeah. And that's what led to the current iteration of the Blue Heron mm-hmm. brand identity
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the um, and then subsequently Lumi's brand the parent company's brand identity Mm. so really to try to unite that idea between art and science that they're connected right that that to in order to really focus on creating style and art and all of that is on that foundation is is some level of knowledge and science and that helps those the two things work together
0: it's beautiful. Like I, I really enjoyed wandering around both websites. Like Lumi's sort of got that 60s and 70s sort of far out yes. feel to it. And yet, you yeah. know, it, you could be looking at installation artwork in an art gallery. Like that was sort of like the, the feeling that I got when I was looking at it all. Um, beautiful photography. And yet it's got like, it looks as if it's laid onto this beautiful matte paper. Like it's just stunning. Like I recommend, I'm going to have a link to both websites in the show notes. And I, I recommend yeah. everybody to go down and have a look
1: the the team that they worked with the photographers the videographers mm-hmm. uh did incredible work their their inspiration for it was really profound i got to witness a bit of the photo shoot the day they were working on that with how they set it up mm-hmm. um and it's uh it yeah, I'm inspired when I look at it because I think they did something really important in trying to capture a vision that we yep. that helps keep us driving forward towards that.
0: Beautiful. I just want to touch on the book that you um that you have put together. So it's called The Art of Plant-Based Cheesemaking. And it was first yeah. released in 2017. And you've just released yeah. a second edition last year. So, yes. you know, I can imagine that it would have been a very heavy project. You know, it would have really <laughs> consolidated. You know your cheese making process, but you know there was also the elements of photography in there too, and it's a beautiful looking book. So, tell us about the the book writing process that you went through.
1: Yeah, book writing. Yeah, it's ironic. I left behind academia, thinking I was there because I didn't want to <laughs> write something, <laughs> and then I ended up writing something. Yeah, uh, yeah. Book writing is 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 it's worth doing. It's hard. Mm. Um, I enjoyed and hated it simultaneously Um, on the first edition of the book. And I, that it, it, I mean, first of all, both of those books are very much geared towards the home user. So they're not really a reflection of commercial processes or even what we inherently do at Lumi and Blue Heron. Um, But they were really designed for the home user to really get an understanding around fermentation and culturing. Mm -hmm. And the first book I'm so grateful was shot Um, The majority of the photos were shot by my friend, Catherine Downs. Um, She's a food photographer and food writer in, in based out of Palm Springs, California right now. Um, And she's written for a number of significant publications Mm -hmm. down there. Um, And by Colin, Colin's also a very gifted photographer and did a lot of the key photography for the first book. Um, So, uh, and I was very Proud that first book went on to win a Gourmand World Cookbook Award in 2018 in its oh, Congratulations! Category. Yeah, that was that was pretty great. Um, the second edition was a significantly bigger project, and really, although the book has the same title, is really very much a different book. Really. Um, and it was written during most of the beginning of the pandemic. So the original photography plan kind of fell out the window. Yeah. Um, so there's photography from a number of sources, uh, um, uh, a friend, a uh, colleague, I should say, Andre Shepard, who's a talented photographer in his own right, did some shooting. I uh, used some photos from Catherine again, some from Colin. And mm-hmm. I actually did a lot of my own photography for this book, which was a bit of a new thing for me, because I, I can't profess to being a particularly um, practiced or overly skillful photographer. Um, but the nature of COVID and restrictions of the time really inhibited bringing to it people done. together.
0: <laughs> <And Yep>. so,
1: <laughs> doing that uh, it challenged a lot of things. Um, and the second book was really meant to expand on reflections of what's happening in the vegan cheese sector, that there are sort of these classes and of styles of vegan cheese that are mm-hmm. evolving, that are built around very different approaches. Yep. Um, it's definitely a methodology book and not like your quick guide to making something quick in 10 minutes at home yeah. thing. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Which is sort of, you know, that slow, the slow food movement, which is, you know, progressing yeah. quite largely around the world, I've noticed too
1: yeah it was fundamentally it's really meant to tie people back into paying attention to what they do so I recognize readily it's not a book for everybody like it's it's maybe a quite quite a bit more technical than some people want it to be Mm. Um, and it's certainly not going to be intended for somebody who wants the really fast approach yeah Um, but it's meant to serve as like a reference piece for people sort of you know exploring their own ideas Mm -hmm. Um, it's meant to to, you know, provide some knowledge. There will eventually be a third edition yep. that builds on the growing knowledge that's evolving from the sector.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, it wasn't a project I thought I would do, but there it is. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Um, you know, for a lot of people, writing a book and getting it out into the world is somewhat of a marketing exercise. So have you seen that it's, you know, elevated your name in the industry and the brand of Blue Heron and Creamy? And how do you sort of, would you recommend, you know, um, to other people they're <laughs> listening to if they feel passionately about writing a book to, you know, work through something like that?
1: Uh, I actually know a lot of friends of mine who have it on their list in their lives as a bucket list item that they want to write a book. And I'm always like, but why? It's not easy. But <laughs> it's not none of it's easy. Yeah. Um, there's no part of it's easy and it doesn't bring you wealth um, unless you're, you know, somehow lucky enough to land on a New York Times bestseller kind of thing. Um, so uh, it was never intended as a marketing exercise because the book sort of the whole book project and the whole book thing actually preceded all of Blue Heron. Right. right. Yep. All of that preceded. Lou Heron and and Lumi it was sort of like this they were kind of running in parallel but Mm -hmm. differently yeah um but that said um I the book brings people to me all the time every day I probably get emails and direct messages from different parts of the world where people use the book or have questions about something in it or want to talk more about you know, having longer conversations with me about stuff. Um, I will readily confess that because of COVID, because of the the same timing of launching the new version of Blue Heron slash Lumi, um, that the book getting published in May of last year was not ideal timing because I yeah. haven't really been able to do any marketing around the book all that mm-hmm. well. Because yeah. there's we've had to really try to focus on on the loomy blue heron side, and that's had to be the clearer priority. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't really I, there's definitely a relationship between the two because we always get we get a lot of emails to our connect our public, like our communication accounts, where people will write Lumi or Blue Heron and ask questions about the book or yeah. ask someone on our team to answer specific questions in internal to the book. Um, so there's definitely a, a comprehension out there that there's that connection. Um, but to what effect do they overall mutually inform each other? I'm not entirely sure. No, I'm not. That's not entirely clear to me.
0: That's interesting. Um, Yeah, I'm glad I could have a chat with you about, you know, the book writing process, because I know that it is a really heavy endeavor. Um, (laughs) But like you mentioned earlier on, it's a process of really consolidating and forming ideas, you know, like the writing process, you know, it helps you think through ideas. So did much change like your approach to cheesemaking? Like, did it shift from the start of the book to the end? And you're like, oh, now I've got to go back to the start and sort of like change my position? Or how did that sort of work out?
1: Well, I mean, it's sort of like evolving how methodology in general is very iterative, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you take, you study, you take a knowledge. I studied fermentation. I studied microbiology. I, uh, my, my own experiments to write the book, which are not actually designed on what we do commercially speaking. Yeah. Um, but designing it for things that people could do at home with relative ease and doing it in those ways. It's iterative. And so it means, yeah, there were absolutely, I'd get, especially with the second edition be, being much bigger, I'd get partway through writing sections and then have to go back and rehaul things. Mm-hmm. Um but it doesn't change overall the pros, because the whole sector, the whole approach to vegan cheese making is, it, is iterative in and of itself. Not one person has all of the information or answers, not yeah. all one person has the only method. And, and so the my book tries to sort of address the fact that there are these, there are the oil starch cheese approaches, there are the their combination approaches where oils and added other things may still also be cultured. And then there's other versions of that. Um, So the book has been more about trying to identify what's going on in the sector at a meta level, trying to identify what those broad classes are Mm -hmm. so that teasing out what may prospectively follow from that um, in a sector that doesn't have something like standards of identity the way the dairy cheese sector has so to say the term vegan cheddar literally means nothing like Mm. it means nothing aside from the fact that the product itself will be devoid of animal product but to use that term means nothing because the word cheddar itself actually refers to a specific process of cheese making really okay yeah, there's a cheddaring process. That's a specific way in which the style of cheese is made. Yes. And then people identify the flavor type or flavor style with it. Yeah. But the process, the word cheddar actually comes from the process of the cheese making and from the region in the UK where that particular style of cheese making evolved. Interesting. So, in vegan cheese, to say vegan cheddar, there, you can talk to 15 different vegan cheese producers and nobody's producing their version of a cheddar style. The same way Mm. you bring 15 dairy cheddar producers together, there'll be differences, certainly between artisan and mass, but in general, they can have a common conversation about what general cultures they use, what the process types are that they use, but there's a, they can have a, a language conversation and consequently, because of that coherency there are regulatory standards of identity that are attached to those terms so what is lacking in the vegan cheese sector side now is that there isn't that kind of coherency in an intentional way there are things that are evolving that where there's very obvious practices that show common elements yeah but there is not been, there there isn't a school you go to to learn all of it
0: yeah that's really interesting it's yep. not
1: true of yep. all cheeses um but cheddar is just an example a uh, brie for instance is actually named for a region in france yeah. um uh, same with camembert um, and and the subsequent mold that's used in uh, one of the molds that's used in Camembert is also named for that region. Gorgonzola is named for a region in Italy. So uh, the dairy, dairy cheese has had several hundred, if not thousands of years to evolve in mm. different places. Yeah. And so there's been a different timeline for the evolution of that, of the of the traits and the characteristics and the types of of things that have evolved. Whereas vegan cheese is very much um, a a modern development uh, occurring, mostly in urban centers, Mm. um, in a a very different sort of approach to things. And so consequently, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, no, I was going to say, are you finding that there are, you know, new vegan cheeses that, you know, are bringing on new names and entities and sort of categories of its own because of, you know, um, you know, the specific method that's being used, for example? Not,
1: no, not yet. Um, not yet. I, there's, there are, there are things like the, like cashews as a material have become very ubiquitous because they're very easy to use. Yeah, I'm um, Now for on this topic, I'm really just talking about cultured vegan cheese right now. Um, there are, um there are definitely lots of people dipping their toes into the application of like the mold, like blue and white molds because um based on the type of organisms they can actually grow they grow very easily on a lot of surfaces including plant material they won't digest the plant material the same way they will digest animal milk materials um but they're so they, those arenas will probably yield the first place where standards of identity can be achieved um but most vegan cheese sort of set out to either um deploy references to dairy nomenclature in some way like cheddar style yes. or plays on words um like that you'll see um but not a lot some are like my pal steven at conscious cultures in philadelphia um, and, and ourselves are really trying to evolve styles that are mm-hmm. unique in and of themselves that self-reference the process. So we we produce a style of cheese that we call a cumulus. It's very specifically made from coconut cream and chickpea um, and it's cultured and it has, a, a it, we have our own set of specs that we want that thing to achieve. And so we are looking to sort of like, uh, solidify that work through trademark. Um, but there's, it's, I think in a sector that's evolving very quickly, that has a lot of other things that are happening in it right now. Um, And with everybody wanting to protect their own intellectual property, it gets a little harder to have some of the conversations around shared knowledge and standards and and um, a collaborative approach to achieving standards of identity. I think it's something that will just involve over time a little bit of necessity as you have to deal with regulatory bodies, Mm -hmm. Um, much like it sort of did, you know, in the dairy realm as well. So, um we're just not as likely to have that very specific regional impact per se as as those other styles of cheese did because ours is born in such a very different way we're a already working community.
0: With, yeah
1: yeah exactly it's already born in such a very different way than the hyper localized um materials and approaches and microbes even yeah so i i think there'll be that's just going to be an ongoing part of that evolution um, and then when you're looking at product types like that are starch and oil and fractionated proteins uh, la some of the product types you'll see out there that you know occupy shredded bags, uh, you know, bags of shreds and things like that. We're talking about an entirely different class of of something that's being produced there. So um, I think it's an exciting time for the sector, but there's, you know, quite a lot of things going on within it.
0: Yeah, no doubt. It'll be interesting to sort of see how far the industry goes in sort of the next five to 10 year period, because, you know, since the establishment of Blue Heron Creamy in 2016, you look at how far the industry has come. You know, you just have to go into a save on or a grocery store and you look at that, um, you know, you go and look in the cheese section and there's quite the variety and competition out there for you at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's exploded since 2013. Um, And now there's a newer set of things that are happening in the food tech side, um, where the use of a technology, it, the technology itself is not new, it's just experiencing a new application, but where precision fermentation um, is being deployed to produce animal-free casein and whey proteins, um, uh, there's a several large food tech companies that are looking to enter as a, in platform ingredient companies producing these materials Um, with the hopeful intent of being able to achieve a product parity with dairy style, with animal dairy products. Um, so there's a company in California called Perfect Day. Uh, they raised uh, over 950 million dollars at this point wow. uh, for the production of this. They have some prototype. Uh, they they have a couple of they have Brave Robot ice cream that's utilizing their way, um, and they also have New Culture that's just launched its its first round of cream cheese. Um, But what some of these companies are also finding is that the protein is only part of it, um, that when you still have to build a matrix out so if we look at animal milk it's a matrix or a suspension of protein fats and carbohydrates. And then in dairy cheese making, cultures and enzymes are applied, and then there's different processes that end up with different products. Um, so the precision, the synthetic biology approach, or this the use of precision fermentation to, to generate these animal-free proteins, I think is very interesting and exciting. And yields a lot of prospect for uh, continued product evolution and development in in animal-free dairy alternatives. Um, But how all of that turns out yet is really still a bit of the unknown. Mm. Um, It's definitely a gold rush in terms of financing. Uh, Those companies are raising a lot of money (laughs) very quickly. Um, We at Lumi are actually engaged in working with a company in the sector on prototype development, utilizing some of those. So it's very much just in background R and D right now. We we have, there's nothing scheduled for launch per se yet, but we're, we're investigating what that looks like and what that might mean for, for use. Um,
0: you got your finger on the pulse. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah we're, we're trying to keep ourselves <laughs> tuned into what's happening. Yeah. that's what,
0: awesome.
1: I, Yeah. A lot of things can happen in a couple of years.
0: I don't doubt it. And it's kind of incredible that, you know, the cheese making process is, you know, what is it, thousands of years old, would you go so far as to say, like, it's probably one of the most original forms of, you know, fermenting is one of the original forms of, you know, processing a food based product, and uh, and getting it into a state where it can be easily digested and eaten safely. And here we are today in 2022, with the prospect of, you know, new technologies being able to further advance, you know, in this space, it's pretty incredible to think that You know, there's still a bleeding edge, you know, that's being applied, you know, to food like this.
1: I think with the new with so much happening so fast, um, it can sometimes be a little uh, nerve inducing for people who are a little bit unsure about the applications and what they might mean. Yeah. Um, but some things like precision fermentation have actually been used for quite a long time, particularly okay. in the biomedical realm. But even in dairy cheese making where precision fermentation has been used to produce microbially produced chymosin, which is um, a digestive enzyme that in some dairy cheeses is used instead of uh, calf derived rennet, really? for instance. And so really what's happening right now is taking this long standing approach and just using it in a different way yeah yeah. um so uh i'm always curious about this sort of thing and i'm certainly curious about how these 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 types of ingredients will behave Mm -hmm. i know there's some out there who are very vocally not interested in it like miyoko who's her Shanair has become very vocal about not uh being interested in this realm um but I think there's prospect there. I'm not, for me, if it allows us to achieve something that's really high quality and good and safe for consumption, and it's not about taking fractionated oils and uh, refined starches and things like that and recombining them, then I think there's value in considering that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, as most things do, once things start hitting the market, the market, uh, and I kind of hate saying it, but I think some of that will just sort itself out a little bit as people sort of decide what they are interested in. Yeah. Do I? But I, at the same time, I don't think this new technology will entirely replace this really exciting thing that's evolved just that's purely based on plants. Like, I don't yeah. think it'll fully eradicate that.
0: Yeah, yeah, these things do take time, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, Lumi. So, you know, you established Lumi in 21 and I wanted to sort of hear the background story around the, you know, the the establishment of Lumi and what it means and, you know, how it all ties in together and and what the future holds for Lumi.
1: Well, that's uh yeah, that's big. <laughs> so, uh Lumi itself actually sort of officially took form in 2020, late 2020, when right. Colin and I uh, aligned with uh, Lawrence Ede, um who's the third co-founder, uh, okay. he's uh, also the president of Lumi Loomish- of Pretty's Chocolates. Yeah, so um, did say that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we still were under the name officially of Blue Hair and Creamery at the time, um, but part of our fundraising at the time, which was to get us into a larger manufacturing facility, mm-hmm. uh, was also with this idea that we will be entering the U.S. market. And so when we began looking at prospective um, trademark issues, there's a fairly big one in the U.S. Uh, so there's Blue Heron French Cheese Company sitting right. in Tillamook, Oregon, and they've been there for over 40 years. And so it became very, very clear that to enter the U.S. market, we wouldn't be able to do it under the Blue Heron name because mm-hmm. there would be in, almost instant uh, trade, uh, you know, consumer confusion issues. Yeah. So we made the decision to um, choose a different parent company name and maintain blue heron as a legacy brand piece for for InterCanada um because we'd had all this history behind that so we went through a group process of that of the name iteration project a member of our board uh, Jaren meche mm-hmm. is actually the one who first presented the name lumi forward and and um so lumi is sort of a part of the etymology of like the word luminescent um, right. so it implies glowing and emanation and mm-hmm. expansion and so it took its roots there. And then the design team at arithmetic really built out the idea concept from Didn't that. I?
0: Yeah. I, that's a beautiful website. Like I, um, I mentioned earlier on and, uh, I actually met Jaron two weeks ago. He popped into food pack to say hello. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Jaron's great. Jaron's such high energy and he's so smart. And, um, it's been a real a blessing to have him on our board of directors. Yeah. Um, someone with that kind of a big insight into consumer sales and yeah. and relationship building
0: yeah totally you've actually built a very strong um team around you you know as the board of directors and and just in general like i mentioned earlier on um that i do know whitney from her days at terra breads as well and oh like, yeah so you know the value of having a very strong um core group of advisors and people that you're working with is obviously very important to you at what stage did you sort of um realize that that was something you had to put in place
1: I, I, we i think i we've always known that and i certainly always known that yeah. um i certainly don't feel like i have all the answers i certainly know i have vision like that i have an, a clear idea of what i want to get at yeah. And, yeah. and that um but i don't begin to assume at all that i like understand the world of high finance mm. or things mm. like that um i so i think, when we were, when we were first uh, building the plan in late 2020, we, we did believe that we were going to be heading on a, like many plant-based companies at the time we're heading down the public company path. Yep. Um. So we were definitely considering that at the time and, and pursuing that. And so it meant really needing, I mean, anytime you're building a company, building a good team is important regardless of yeah. w- whether you're public or private or not. Um. So regardless that was always going to be important. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've had uh, all through the process from beginning to now, we've had a great opportunity to have a good number of very good people involved at different stages.
0: Yeah. I can Um, say that. Yeah.
1: So uh, and things change, you know, always like there's always some change with things. So we like we're in another sort of revisiting of the path we take now. Um, and so we're introducing a new production model that I'm pretty excited about. Um, you, you got to, you know, that's why we're talking about a certain kind of packaging yeah. style. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's very exciting. Yeah. Um,
1: so, yeah, no, I feel really fortunate that there have been so many really quite incredible humans mm. that have intersected in this journey so far and are on the team.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, it's definitely a common um, part of the conversation that I've been so lucky to have with all of the entrepreneurs that have been, you know, wanting to come on and have a chat on this show, you know, is that you're only as strong as the people around you. Um, but one thing that I've also recognized is that, you know, you want, um, you know, skill sets that complement yours. So what would you say your strengths and weaknesses are?
1: Oh, goodness. Oh, my gosh. Um, definitely my weaknesses are, are that I... So I, I definitely like I sit in the realm of neurodivergency and I don't really want to pick that apart too much, sure. but it does mean that the, that some things that are very easy for others to process and do and deal with are not always as straightforward or as easy for me, or that the amount of time I need to synthesize and come back is very different. Mm-hmm. So people who are very gifted at, um, social engagements and understanding relationships um i do tend to gravitate to those people because i definitely know that i have to work in a different way in that arena so i find uh, it's when someone's very good at that i'm i i often like i impart a high value to that Mm -hmm. um because it's not my immediate (laughs) gift um i have to i have to really put in the work to like understand that stuff yes um, I I think that some of the people we brought on the team are very very good uh, tac- tacticians. Um, so they're excellent at ex- execution phase of things and mm-hmm. so um, devising the plan head- hitting those marks. Um, so I've, I really uh, have been learning a lot from those individuals. Um, I think for my strengths, I guess, um, I think it's, it's the big picture and this in terms of understanding what's happening at at the level of the market itself in relation to the sector, um, really understanding how the science and the methodology work to yield outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I guess the nerd stuff, (laughs) um, but so I what I would say is that do I wish I was a lot more like a Melissa than a Karen that I 100% wish I was a <laughs> lot more like a Melissa. I definitely read as much as her. I definitely deep dive. She is a deep
0: reader, isn't she? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and I am equally as deep a reader as Melissa because uh, I always have been. But I think there are other elements of her kind of persona that I think uh, I definitely wish I had a, had. <laughs>
0: yeah it's easy to play a game of comparison isn't it but you know knowing what your strengths are is also a strength in itself and you know you've obviously um done extremely well to put yourself in a position to be leading a team at Lumi that you do have um i've got a couple more questions for you if you had the opportunity to go back and whisper in your ear back when you were getting started in the industry with the knowledge that you (laughs) currently have now what would you tell yourself
1: oh my god So many things, so many, so many things, so many, so many things. It's on my mind all the time, actually. Um, Make sure you know your numbers, Mm -hmm. like make sure, make sure, make sure, spend a lot of time on that end, really deep dive on that background end. Make sure you have good, strong, strong systems in place so -hmm. that you can understand trajectories and and what's happening um I 100% would have gone back and as much as I very much adored having the main street storefront and what I and that was such a unique part of our story is I if I could have gone back and said no bypass the storefront and really just double down on a production facility I would do that because it would have or shortened up uh, a sort of this this it would have made much easier this move from a micro scale up, mic- micro processing to scale up a whole lot easier. I can imagine. Um, so. so I think there, oh my God, there's like such a long list of things I'd go back and tell myself.
0: <laughs> Bricks and mortar is so much more expensive than what people first anticipate.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, the storefront is a beautiful romantic story, but it was not like it was never going to be, Easy, we could never scale within that. Like that was never going to meet a demand level,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so that was making it challenging to take on accounts and to move beyond just counter service in the store or maybe farmers markets. And so, uh, that I, I'm not. I don't regret it. I learned a lot. Don't I don't regret it. But uh, had I an opportunity to go back and revisit that, I would 100% say, Oh, that sounds so good. But no, let's just stay over there. (laughs) Let's stay focused on that.
0: That's interesting. Um, If we were to fast forward a year from now and you could say to me that you'd had your best year ever, what would you have accomplished?
1: The best year ever. It would mean finishing the build out in our new facility, Mm -hmm. it would mean achieving Canada wide distribution. Um, with consistency of delivery and with like ensuring the very best product going out. Um, and it would really, really importantly mean um, a, a team that's happy and working well together. That would be very, very important for me um, because it's scale up is hard. And yeah. and so we see making sure that that can all happen, I think would be that would feel like success to me. Um, because then it would feel like the ship is on the right path.
0: <laughs> None of it seems as if it's out of reach to me. Like you know, it's very much in the trajectory. like think the wheels are in motion from what I hear, and um, that's really exciting. So I think that you should you know maybe make some bigger goals. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, there are definitely bigger goals. Like we, we are in this protein industries, Canada research project. Um, We have five significant planks of research. Um, I am playing a little close to chest about it because some of 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 that uh, is attached to some IP and things. So, Oh, there are, there are significantly bigger goals. Um, But I, I am feeling very much the need for us to really uh, like while that stuff's working in the yep. background feeling very much a need to focus <laughs> on us yeah. stabilizing the scale yep. up yeah completing some of the work that began last year and then we you know with the excitement of getting the save on foods launch mm-hmm. sort of yeah like, i did
0: say that as well congratulations
1: yeah paused some things so um i think if we can get those things uh like aligned, then I will feel like, okay, the, the bigger stuff will be even that much more exciting to share.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And you know what, like a year feels as if it's a long time, but it goes by in a blink of an oh, eye. No. So, you know, when you are just projecting like for, <laughs> it, it goes, doesn't it? I know it really does. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate the, uh, you know, the opportunity to sit down and have a good chat with you. And I feel as if I could talk to you about cheese all day, like you're so passionate <laughs> and, you know, you're so well-versed and it's, you know, it's so evident uh, and to me and I'm sure everybody listening today that, you know, um, you know, the book was just the beginning and I'm really excited to see where you take the business.
1: It was great to have this conversation with you, Hayden. Um, thank you very God, much. Thank you so much for having me on today. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening today if you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what i can do to help you achieve your packaging vision you can reach me directly at hayden at the you could dm me on instagram at the pack podcast or we could also connect on linkedin and start a conversation there i will see you next week